0: Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Beaumart Martonic.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. In the spirit of this podcast being about mountain bucks, I want to talk about the logging cut feature, the timber cut feature within Onyx. So within the Onyx Hunt app on public land and specifically with federal public land, so national forest, you can turn on a layer called timber cuts. And what that does is will label any of the logging cuts, you know, within the last 10 years, you're able to see where they're at and they even have the year that the cut was was actually cut as, and as well as what type of cut it is, whether it was a select cut, it was clear cut, and that can really help you with scouting and finding some of these areas. You know, I call the logging cuts the Big Woods food plots, and they're called that for a reason. And as they get older, they just turn into bedding areas and still create food sources for many, many, many years. Um, using this feature on the Onyx Hunt app is is really helpful for hunting some of these big woods mountain bucks. So if you want to check out the Onyx Hunt app, go to onyxmaps.com, use the coupon code EMW, save yourself 20% off of the app. So Maven Optics. Maven has come out with the highest quality optics available and have to price their competitors using their direct-to-consumer business model. So, for hunting whitetails in the mountains, I'm running the Maven B3 Series 8x30. It's the smallest package, very lightweight, but still great with uh, the same ED quality glass that are in the other B Series, and it works great with low light, but in such a small package that when they're around your neck, they don't feel like they're even there, and you know, a lot of people I've seen, you know, take binos in and they'll hang them, you know, next to them in the tree, you know, on a, on some sort of a hook or anything like that. And that really doesn't do you any good when you need to be able to pull them up and check from the tree stand. You need to have them on you and having them so lightweight as the, the B3 series is that really helps that out. So if you want to go over to mavenbuilt.com, you can build yourself a custom a you know, series of the the B three or pick up one of the stock options, and if you use the coupon code East Meets West dash Gift, get yourself a free gift with any order at mavenbelt dot com. The University of Elk Hunting. So Corey Jacobson, Elk One Hundred One, have put together the most fully comprehensive elk hunting learning course available, and for, with through their sixteen modules, they go through everything from planning the hunt all the way through the end. And with most of elk seasons in the past now, this is the perfect time to start planning for next year. You know, pick up the, the course. It's good for a whole year and you can learn so many different options. But in addition to that, Destination Elk, the Elk 101 YouTube series is going to be launching here in November. Going through Corey Jacobson's season, you know, with a, with a day-by-day type YouTube series that doesn't just entertain you but has a lot of very good educational values to it, so check that out as well as the University of Elk Hunting. If you use the coupon code East Meets West, save yourself 20% off of the online course. And uh, you can find more at elk101.com. All right, uh, some news with, uh, with East Meets West type, so I got I just updated the website. This online store now has the new Blaze Orange series of hats. So I have two different hats up there, the Mountain Bucks and the Adventure Blaze hats. They're in their, you know, the Richardson 112, that classic trucker fit that everyone loves from Richardson. And I think these hats, you know, turned out great as far as what uh, what they what they look like. I got the... I got the confirmation that they're being shipped to my house currently, so I should have them here by the end of this week and ready to go out the door. So I threw them up online and they're available to purchase. I ordered a limited stock. Once they go, they go. So if you want to, you know, check them out and and rock one of the new Blaze series hats, then I'd recommend trying that out sooner than later. And in addition to that, I did put up some koozies on the website, and if you're familiar with some of the ones I've I've given out with, with if you've ordered any apparel over thirty dollars, I've been giving away free koozies, and these ones are actually a little bit different. So these ones I put on the website are the tight fitting neoprene, really nice koozies, and have them on there be a great option to add onto your order. So check that out and at eastmeetswesthunt.com slash shop. So check that out. And also I have a new blog post up. So my brother, Kurt Martonic, put together a quick little short blog post on um, hunting Pennsylvania seasons and how to enter them into your mobile calendar in less than five minutes. And the Pennsylvania Game Commission has a great resource for that. So I just kind of went through some instructions how to Set that up so you can look at your calendar on your phone any day, anywhere, and see what's in season. It's a pretty cool little thing. You can apply that to any other state, but it requires some more manual work. But um, Pennsylvania makes that nice and easy. So check that out over eastmeetswesthunt.com slash journal. All right, so on this podcast here, I have Troy Pottinger, and we're talking all about Mountain Buck's. Troy is an absolute killer of giant deer. And he's from the mountains of Idaho. What's great and what's really cool about this, and why I wanted to bring him on is, you know, even though he's all the way across the U.S., these strategies can be applied to the same mountain bucks we're hunting here in the Appalachian Range. And it's, it's, it's pretty crazy how similar that the strategies are and some of the things that can be applied. A lot of really good knowledge here. Um Troy takes no shortcuts, just a great hunter, and um so glad that he was able to you know share some of his knowledge here. I've been out hunting a little bit since the last episode came down with strep throat, it was pretty sick and, and didn't get out a ton, but did get out over the weekend. Scrapes and rubs are popping up like crazy. Some of my cameras are lighting up. Um, some younger bucks moving in daylight. And some bigger ones starting to show their face, so it's it's about to get really good here. Um, really, really, at this time of year, I'm focusing on these scrapes that are close to security cover, which can act as bedding. And so, any you know older clear cuts, things like that, just on the outside or inside that security cover, those type of scrapes are what I'm focusing on right now. And you'll notice, you know, usually these type of scrapes that I'm focusing on are the community type scrapes. So, you know, they're the ones that have the bigger licking branch. All the deer in the area, all the bucks are checking it out and almost working these branches year round. But um, right now is when they're really starting to activate and and get going. So it's, uh, I'm really, really pumped to see what the season, you know, what comes out of it. I uh, just have here a couple more weeks of work. And then Chris Derrick from Sika Gear is coming to Pennsylvania to hunt with me, to hunt some of these public land, mountain whitetails, work on some prototype Sika items coming out for 2020. Super pumped for some of that um, when I'm finally able to share that in January. So be be on the lookout for for some cool stuff coming up here. And hopefully everyone that's out in the Whitetail Woods is having some luck, share some photos with me, love to see them and some stories, anything like that. Um well, I guess let's uh let's just jump into this podcast here with Troy Pottinger. All right, we're live. Welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast. And today I have on the line Troy Pottinger from Idaho, how's it going, Troy?
0: Good, Bo. Good, uh, good. Uh, Get to talk to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to have you on and and talk about my favorite subject, which is mountain bucks. I, I heard you recently. Just to give the listeners a little bit of a background, I heard you recently on uh, Dan Staten's Elk Shape podcast, and I was immediately like, I I need to talk to this guy, and I sent Dan a message, and he's like, Yeah, he's like he's the real deal. He's like, you need to, you need to talk to him. And I'm, I I'm surprised I haven't seen any of your stuff up to this point.
0: Yeah. You know, I think, you know, we're a long ways away and the whole mountain buck culture, it's starting, it's starting to grow a little bit, but you know, I remember years ago, uh, just when, you know, internet really took off and there's, you had all these web pages and blogs going and you know, I would talk to guys a lot in the Midwest about whitetails, and when I'd start explaining to them about where I hunted them, they couldn't hardly believe it. And then when I had some friends from the Midwest come out and hunt with me out here, they were just blown away. they they'd get out here and go, well, where do you even start?
2: You know, How do you <laughs> yeah. even
0: start in this kind of country? So so yeah, I do think, though, that it's, we're starting to gain a little ground across the whitetail culture with, you know, there's a lot of mountains in this country, period, that hold whitetail bucks.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, before we started recording here, we were talking a little bit about, you know, you're in the, the Rocky Mountains in, in Idaho and I'm all the way over in the Appalachian Mountains, but it's, it's not the same, but it's uh, very similar. in as far as the, the way the deer are and, and some of the tactics used, you know, for that. And I, I think a, a a bigger majority of the whitetail community hunts that way. It just was never exposed to media.
0: I I agree. I agree. There's, it it hasn't been a media focus and now it's gaining a little traction because there are, there there are a lot of mountain hunters out there. I mean, people love the mountains and anywhere there's mountains, people go to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Troy, before we dive into this a little bit here, do you want to give a little bit of background on uh, yourself and, and kind of your fascination with, with hunting whitetails out there?
0: Yeah, you bet. Um, I'll be 50 in a couple of weeks. So, you know, I've spent a lot of time in my lifetime hunting whitetails and I, I'm a native Idahoan, uh, born and raised here, did go to college in Montana. So I, I never left the Rocky mountains and everything I've ever hunted has been mountain related. Uh, love to elk hunt, uh, love to bear hunt, love to Turkey hunt and love. And, and by far my favorite thing to hunt is a whitetail. Um, but, you know growing up out here out west to go back and date me back to my teen years and even when I was you know preteen, my dad was a big elk hunter and mule deer hunter that's what he was into and I fell in love with the whitetails at a young age um, my parents said made a move and my mom was a teacher and my dad was a logger and we made a move to northern Idaho and you know, I'd always been around whitetails a little bit when I was a kid, but my dad being an elk and mule deer hunter, that was always the focus, but I was always fascinated by them, but when we moved to northern Idaho, that changed everything for me. Uh we had them on our property. We bought 50 acres. Uh, my dad was into cattle, my dad logged, my mom taught school, and we we always had whitetails around, so I grew up with them, you know, in my backyard so to speak. We lived out in the country, about 30 miles from my high school that I ended up going to. So I always lived out in the mountains, uh, spent my whole life growing up in the mountains with my dad, being a logger. And from about 10 years old on, whitetails had me. I had them on my property. My dad set me down and said, hey, you know, we moved up here. I don't know a lot about these whiteys like, you know, like I do mule mule deer and elk. And I never forget this. He said, son you're going to have to figure this out on your own. <laughs> I'll never forget him telling me that. And here I am a little kid. I'm thinking, all right, game on, uh, saw nice bucks around my property and just was instantly just intrigued by how careful they were sneaking around my property and, you know, very cautious compared to the way a mule deer moves. So I started hunting them on my own when I was 12 years old and killed my first white tail buck by myself at 12 years old. And, you know, just passed my property line up on some timber company ground. And that's when it, that's when it all started when I was young on my own.
1: Yeah. And then ever since then, you just kind of just kept rolling with it and wanting to learn more about the, about the white tails and, and everything else there in the mountains.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, I was always fascinated with bow hunting through my dad. They did a little, did did a lot of elk hunting, but some archery bow hunting. And my dad had an old uh, Allen compound, uh, one of the first compounds ever made, and we had an old recurve and,
1: and laying
0: around. And I always thought to myself, even at a younger age, that if I could figure out how to kill animals with a bow, I was probably doing something right because I had to get close. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I actually in high school, made a few comments to a few of my friends about bow hunting whitetails and wanting to get into it and do it because, you know, I looked at the regulations and saw there was so much more season to hunt if I did it. And where I grew up, nobody did it. Nobody was really into it. So when I would make comments about it and started doing it on my own and talking about it, I literally got laughed at, (laughs) you know, literally got laughed at by, by adult men that were like, are you nuts? Wait till the rut and shoot one with a rifle. You know, you're wasting your time, kid. So that kind of fueled my fire. That really fueled my fire. And I was always extremely intrigued by biology. That was my favorite classes all through high school and college. Uh, I have a degree in kinesiology and a minor in biology. And anyway, I was always super intrigued with the science behind these deer. So from my high school years on, I just decided Nobody really told me, I said, I'm going to become, I'm going to figure this out and and I'm going to start killing these bucks with a bow and arrow. And I'm not just going to kill bucks. I want to kill some of these big ones that I'm seeing. And that was, that was just fueled by an inner fire. Really didn't have anybody point me that direction other than my dad saying, you're going to have to figure this out on your own. And I just started reading everything I could. Of course, everything I read back in the day was from the Midwest. Yeah, um, and then I started reading every biological scientific book I could read uh, about whitetail so that I could understand them and then I just started applying my you know my own trial and error tactics and you know pretty soon shoot a buck with a bow and then in my early 20s start shooting big ones and the next thing you know everybody's like what in the heck is he doing he's hunting these whitetails out in the mountains with a bow and arrow and, and then it just snowballed from there and You know, once I shot my first whitetail even as a kid with my rifle, uh I was in love. I I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done in my life was to shoot one of these deer that are so careful and so sneaky. It just it really got to me because I was real close. I think I first deer I ever shot was twenty yards. Yeah, and then that just attracted me to it. And like I said, then I really got serious about it through college and right out of college. I mean, I purposely design my schedule and everything I do. I'm a teacher, um, around my scouting and hunting and time off.
1: I, I was just going to ask because I, I knew that, uh, from listening to Dan's podcast with you, that you were a teacher and how do you have much time off that you're able to hunt whitetails in the fall?
0: Well, I, I do. Uh, but the most crucial time in my opinion for me is all my scouting I do in the office or in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the scouting I do in the spring, you know, I, as a teacher, you work every day till about three o'clock and then you've got daylight every day to hunt in the afternoons.
1: Yes. Okay. As a
0: teacher, teacher, you could, if you're willing to do it, you can be in the woods every day after work every day. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a, always have Thanksgiving off and I always have a big Christmas break, which I really enjoy hunting whitetails over those time periods and out west, we don't start school till after Labor Day. Oh, so okay. we get to hunt the we get to hunt the big whitetails the first week of the season before school starts.
1: Gotcha. So yeah,
0: it, it it's worked great for me. But again, that ninety day or that eighty some days of summer scouting is is something that has taught me more about whitetails. You know that and my winter scouting, but just just having those days off in the summer to really go break country down and lay stuff out has been really helpful
1: yeah and i'm sure it, it probably helps with your with your guys's season opening as early as it does you can probably i mean correct me if i'm wrong but you know find them in somewhat of those summer patterns
0: we're we're totally hunting a summer pattern on a big white tail but we're right on the edge of it you as soon as these bucks into hard horn which is usually the first second or third or fourth day of the season they completely change Mm -hmm. um and, and we see i see that um the two velvets that i've killed and i've shot at three i missed one but the two velvets that i've killed have been august 30th
1: gotcha with
0: and they were still some summer pattern
2: yes
1: Okay, so with like so kind of explain a little bit about the the terrain and the, like the vegetation and stuff. Are you do you have any ag fields that you're able to hunt or is it mostly just big timber?
0: Well, you said you've been out to Idaho.
1: Yeah. Yep, but for a lot further south than where you are, I believe.
0: Yeah, so where you were looks nothing like where I live. Um Idaho's probably the most diverse state in the United States. Um up north where I'm at, it's just a sea Of forest and mountains combined and you might be able to see 50 yards past your face in the timber that's it Mm -hmm. uh steep country all the way up to eight nine thousand feet ten thousand feet some places Um, big ridges this is logging country up here so great timber all conifer trees we do have some nice river bottoms and you know, the few deciduous trees in the bottoms, but everything I'm hunting is for the most part, I'd say 90% of every deer I hunt is strictly a mountain only habitat, no egg.
1: Okay. That's, that's kind of what I figured from just when, when I was just scouting just on Onyx and Google Earth and everything up there, one, I noticed all the timber company properties and all the logging cuts. And we, we have a lot of logging in our area and I love hunting logging cuts. And that kind of drew me to, to seeing that out there. I didn't know. So with your early season, what do you do in the kind of pattern and what are you, what are the food sources and what are you kind of looking at there?
0: Those clear cuts are the best food sources. Those cuts. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. those cuts are great food sources for 30, 40 years. You know, I've I've read stuff where guys say ten years only no no no. They're they're phenomenal for decades. I I actually hunt a couple of the same clear cuts that I hunted when I was twelve years old. Really? Yeah, and they're still incredible. The the reproduction timber in it, you know, obviously is a lot bigger now. Mm-hmm. But we live in a real wet climate up here in North Idaho. We get a lot of rain. So what happens is is our vegetation and undergrowth is about as good as it gets.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So yeah, it, it's a smorgasbord for the whitetails. It really is, and I treat them just like a food plot.
1: Yep. Yeah. That's that's funny. That's what I I always joke about it. I uh, I call it the Big Woods food plot. I mean, that's <laughs> you know exactly what it is. And each and depending on the. You know the age of the clear cuts. They each have like a little bit of different kind of food sources with them, and they're using them a little bit differently. In, in my opinion, but like I, I just look at them differently. But when I find a logging cut and I see something like that, I know that one. That's an area where there's so much food from all the undergrowth and, and everything else that, you know, grows in them, I I think it really helps those deer hit their genetic potentials too. I think you can get some bigger deer in those logging cuts. Do you see anything similar to that?
0: Yeah, I do. But I also see really good bucks, big deer without logging cuts. And that's because you step foot in this country up here, you'll see even, even minus our logging cuts, our timber country is full of vegetation too, just underbrush. So our deer, our deer pretty much can get big in both. Yes, I've done real well around cuts, but I'll tell you, they get the most pressure. They're the easiest to get to. They all have roads. Every logging cut has a road to it. So mm-hmm. um, so for me, I've actually, over the years, gravitated a little more away from the actual cut itself And I hunt the interior heavy security cover that deer use to get to that destination.
1: Okay. I gotcha. And and you're using that and is that season specific or does that, is that all throughout the fall?
0: Out here, it's all throughout the fall. Um, You know, I, I don't know if you deal with mountain lions or wolves or heavy predation like we do, but our, our animals really have to, Stay alive every day. I mean, they're being hunted every day of the year, every hour of the day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, e- even the even the wolves and the mountain lions know where they like to feed. You know what I mean?
1: Yep. Yeah, that that so makes sense. You run into <laughs> you,
0: you run you run into a little different dynamic out here. Um, still, real good hunting during the rut in a cut because you know our doe family groups, like any doe family group, will walk out in the daylight into a cut when. A big buck normally wouldn't, but during the rut, you might catch one, but, but I like to kill whitetails from August to December. So uh, I tend to hunt a lot closer to what I consider a big bucks hideout, uh, where he really feels safe. And, you know, I think in the Midwest, everybody would say his bedding area, but for <laughs> this country, these big deer out here, their bedding area might be a hundred acres, two hundred yeah. acres, <laughs> depending on what the wind's doing that day.
1: Yep. Yeah, I I, I so, agree with, with that as far as there's not, they don't have like one specific bed that, you know, that they're one little patch of woods that they're bedding in, you know, <laughs> makes it, makes it difficult. If,
0: if, yeah, if, if they did, a lion would have them killed before they had a chance to get old.
1: And that's crazy to me because that's, that's definitely a different dynamic with you guys having the lions and the wolves, you know, we have a ton of hunting pressure for white tails, but I, I feel like that's a, that's even makes them more cagey.
0: I, I you know, Bo, I don't know where you've hunted across the country, but I've hunted about everywhere on purpose just to compare and contrast.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I've hunted in all the big States and I've hunted in Alberta and I've never seen a whitetail I've never experienced a whitetail more skittish than the deer I hunt
1: I, I believe it there's not there's not conditions that are you know that really anywhere for whitetails it's it's surprising that uh that they thrive as well as they do there is is the population pretty good do you see many deer or is it because you're so is so thick and everything even if there was a lot you don't see a whole whole lot many a lot of men a lot of them
0: Well, that's a good question. Uh, You know, obviously, I run a lot of trail cameras, so I have a lot more intelligence. But um, now, to to answer your question, compared to hunting the Midwest, I've hunted Oklahoma, Iowa, North Dakota. uh, Compared to hunting Alberta, uh, compared to hunting, you know, Montana river bottoms, no, I I, nowhere near the deer density. But there's a decent enough population to where if you're set up in 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 the right area and you're getting in and out undetected and you're going to see a deer or two a day you might sit a day or two without seeing a deer but i rarely ever hunt without seeing a deer it happens now and then but if i was going to give you a number per square mile based on what my trail cameras show me in a square mile maybe maybe five or six deer maybe ten at the most up in the mountain country, when you get down lower where the ag is and more homes and they're safer from predators, then the numbers go up
1: okay all right that that makes sense and one thing I've noticed with you know yourself and I don't know if are you familiar with Josh Boyd at all? Do you know who Josh is uh,
0: I'm not sure no, I don't think so
1: he's He's from northwestern Montana. And he's real big into elk hunting and everything, but he's killed some giant whitetails in this country. And I've, I talked to him on the podcast before and, and he was, you know, he had a similar, he's hunted similar deer like, like you have with like just killing some absolute giant, even giant antlered, you know, whitetails and just heavy racks and everything. What do you think that, what contributes to the, the, to the, those, just big racks that, that you're killing. I mean, your resume is extremely impressive and it's just interesting to me in that, in that, you know, mountain country that they're, they're getting that big.
0: Yeah, there's, you know, we have a extremely high protein diet for our whitetails in the mountains with our native species. We, we've got, you know, and I'm not a botanist, but, but I saw the numbers. I've looked, I've talked to Guys from the Corps of Engineers, they've showed me the numbers years ago, and we've got stuff that's 25, 26, 27% protein growing. And we have a lot of vegetation, and our country stays green. So I, I know there's good native nutrition. We have incredible, in my opinion, our genetics could rival anybody if our deer were eating what some of the deer, say, in the agriculture country were eating. But we have pretty darn good nutrition for mountains out here. Uh, and our deer are, you know, I'm up by the Canadian border. So you know what the Canadian bodies look like. Yeah. If you look at a few of my pictures, I mean, I weigh my deer gutted. I, I like to dress them, field dress them. And then if I pack them out in pieces, I weigh the whole the whole, you know, I weigh everything, or if I'm fortunate enough to get one out whole, say, get it down to a four-wheeler trail or something and haul it out whole. We've weighed every deer that we get out whole, and heck, a couple years ago, my son shot a six-and-a-half-year-old, 164-inch gross six-by-five that weighed 222 pounds dressed.
1: Wow. Yeah, you're getting you're getting some big some big body deer that's for sure which like you said comes down to their nutrition. I didn't know that that fact about the the protein there which definitely makes sense. I mean, you think about it with even with humans. You know, your the diet is everything. People can work out as much as they want, but if they're not feeding the body that what they what it needs to grow, say for bodybuilders and stuff, then it's not going to grow without the food.
0: Yeah, what what you see out here is you see a deer that climbs mountains every day, that runs two, three thousand feet in elevation if he needs to to survive every day. Um, he's built like a brick shit house. Excuse my language. When he gets older, uh, we have big skeletons. Our deer are a lot of the deer I hunt resemble the Canadian strain. I mean, I'm right there, close to the border in some of my spots. And then you give them some protein. So, you know, I could send you some trail cameras and stuff. My, our buffs are, our bucks are just buff. They're just, they're ripped. They don't carry a lot of fat like a, like a fat Midwest deer does. Mm -hmm. But if you look at how fit they are and how stout they are, they carry a lot of muscle mass. They're just real heavy, you know, real tanks, just really muscled up and stout. And if they make it five, six years, they're probably one of the best, most incredible survival prey animals in, in North America because of what they deal with.
1: Yeah, man, that's the, so I'm, th- I'm thinking as far as like the body size, even compared to our deer where, so just to, to give you a little background, Troy with, uh, with Pennsylvania, we, uh, where I live in the North central region, the deer population used to be through the roof. I mean, people used to see 50, 60 deer a day, even in the, the big woods. But, now it's down, it's a lot lower. But what that did was it helped the forest grow up and it's a lot thicker. The undergrowth is thicker. They have more nutrition and the bodies have increased, you know, exponentially. I mean, I, I think that, you know, some of our bodies here are bigger than, you know, some even the Pennsylvania's farm country deer. Where like, so, but for example, a big, a big mature buck dressed would be about 175, 180 pounds. The biggest, the, the heaviest one I killed uh, a few years ago, he was five and a half years old and his rack was only 125 inches, but he weighed 225 pounds dressed. And that's about as big as, as they get around here. And <laughs> that's, that's a, a giant, giant whitetail as far as the body goes.
0: Yeah, our our agricultural lower land deer, I, I just from the eye test and hunting them for 30-plus years, tend to be smaller. You know, I think we get that DNA that's passed on in the mountains, too, that is the, you know, obviously the DNA that survives and gets bred through these deer. Our does are big up high, our bucks are big-bodied, and it's because that DNA is most favorable at those higher elevations, and it's cold as hell where these deer live. They get They get, our deer migrate. The deer that I hunt, the majority of them have to migrate because of the snow every year.
1: Okay. That's so that they'll go down towards like the the farm country, the lower lands near the houses and everything.
0: They'll all go to the rivers and sometimes it's a 10, 15, 20 mile hike for them to get to the rivers where the low ground is. And they'll, they'll go down. Uh, When they get about two feet of snow, two and a half feet of snow, they just disappear I run my trail cameras year round just to get that evidence. And they usually take off about January and they show back up in April and May every year.
1: What are, what are you doing to, with your, you're talking, you know, quite a bit about trail cameras. What are your, what are you setting those trail cameras up on? Are you using them on scrapes or trails or what, what's kind of your trail camera setup look like?
0: Well, because my deer migrate and, you know, this is all self-taught. But over the years, you know, what I really found was I, I, I'm really into shed hunt. I like to find a lot of our bucks shed before they leave there, before they migrate. A lot of my bucks have dropped their antlers. Uh, they get pushed out right after they drop their antlers and say, middle of January, and they move. All that to say, my deer migrate. And when a deer, you know, it's like a human. If you go south for the winter and come back, you kind of want to get back and tell everybody you're back and you're home, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, in the spring, and I probably picked up, no exaggeration, over the years three or four thousand sheds, somewhere in between there. Um, in the spring, when I'm shed hunting, when I was young, real young, in my teens and twenties, I always noticed that in the spring, when I was up high and shed hunting spots where deer have to migrate, that the big scrapes that I would find would always have deer tracks in them in the spring. And what that told me was, and obviously when trail cameras came about 20 years later, 15 years later, I was able to confirm it. But all these these deer in my country really adhere to scrapes, especially those big community scrapes that every deer in the drainage, which could be a five-mile circle, um, they let each other know that they're back. They go find the licking branch in April. They go right to it immediately in April, and they start addressing it, and they cover those licking branches all through the summer. And they address those licking branches all the way into the fall. And then they start working the dirt right now. October, they start working it a little bit. But a scrape is their their true social hub in this country. So when people hear me talking about scrape hunting, I'm definitely not talking about a scrape that's out on the edge of a field that was a testosterone-based scrape. I'm talking about a scrape that's probably been there for two, three, four, five decades Gotcha. That has that may have ten or fifteen licking branches on it when you look at it, the licking branches are so beat up and so torn and tattered that they've literally broke them off, chewed them off. Uh, it's incredible. and my deer in this country, they live by those scrapes. so you know, I grew up in Idaho where it's illegal to bait yep so as a young as a young guy. I started bow hunting over scrapes and started having all kinds of success as a young guy just camping out on those what I call now a community hub scrape and letting my deer come to me. And, and and now I, you know, now I jump into the equation. And I've done this for years, 20 plus years. I introduce a new buck to these bucks and to these scrapes and to all the does. So then I end up Getting these big breeder bucks to try to find me. They they want to know who I am, where I am, and why I'm in their territory.
1: So how are you and doing? I use this. Okay, you're about to, this, to say it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I use I've been using out of Michigan Buck Fever synthetic since for years, and Idaho's are strictly. Synthetic only scent state now, and other states are going to go to it with all this, you know, disease problem we have. Um, but no, I've been using buck fever synthetics for over twenty years on scrapes, and it's been unbelievable.
1: What, what kind of uh, synthetic scent or like what, what kind of sense are you putting on the branch?
0: So I'm using a preorbital, a mimic of a preorbital gland, saliva gland scent that goes on the branch. It, you know, the the licking branch for me is the key. 100% the most important part of a scrape. So I use that preorbital from April until January when my season closes. And then I use the urines from about the time bucks go into hard antler, I'll start putting some urine into the scrapes. Unless I'm building a new mock scrape, then I don't even care if it's April or May. I put urine in that scrape because every scrape on the planet that is a hub scrape that's been there for decades, all the deer can still smell and they will do it. I've tested it with trail cameras over a hub scrape that I found that it had been there for decades. They still sniff that dirt when they come back in April, and they sniff it, even if it hasn't been urinated in, if it hasn't been, you know, their foot, their feet alone have scent that disperses out of their toes, in between their toes, in those glands. So they'll still scent check a scrape just for footprints in it to know which deer is there. So I will put some urine in a new mock scrape whenever I build it. I don't care what time of year it is. If it's an existing community scrape that I've found and is a gold mine for me, I start touching it up with urine about the same time my bucks start touching it up with urine, which is usually right around September first.
1: Okay. And that's it's funny I so I I love the preorbital glands. We're we're still allowed to use You know, the the real sense here in Pennsylvania, which I'm thinking that's going to come to an end shortly with some of the CWD problems we're having here and everything. But by applying that on that licking branch, people thought it was crazy when I'm running cameras on scrapes year round. And they're not like, even just recently, I I pulled a, a camera that I had out for like two and a half months that I hadn't checked, had it on a scrape. And I had bucks in the summer velvet, just coming up, checking, hitting that branch, you know, doing that doze, doing the same thing and scrapes. I mean, even definitely here in Pennsylvania too, it's a, it's, it's their way of communicating, I guess. I mean, you know, know it better than I do. You've been doing it a lot longer, but that's kind of what I've seen. And it's very similar to what you're saying.
0: Yeah. You're, you're spot on. When I was 10 years old, I moved to my new place up in northern Idaho the first white-tailed deer I ever saw was in the summer and it was a white-tailed buck and I literally watched him walk out of the woods on my new place we had just went up to look at it we hadn't even bought it yet and I saw a white tail buck walk out of the timber line in the summer walk over to a licking branch and start rubbing his face in it and I thought what is that deer doing And it was in the summer and, you know, I didn't know anything about whitetail biology then, but I watched him do that. Now it all makes sense. And yeah, absolutely. These whitetails, they live by those licking branches. Um, That's their, that is their signpost. That is where they let every deer in the woods know they're still alive. They're still around. Um, They're here and they want to be here. So yeah, you, you can't beat a good licking branch in the right location it it's really hard to beat in this especially in this country
1: where so when you're looking for those community hub scrapes is there do you find them in certain terrain features or vegetation or is it kind of just from boots on the ground you you happen to stumble into them
0: you know I don't want to come across arrogant, but the truth is I can get on a map right now and based on terrain features and then cross-reference it with Google and look at the habitat and the security cover and pretty much walk into a terrain-based, a terrain feature-based area, the right elevation and the right kind of cover. And I almost always can find one.
1: Yeah. So like what, what are some of those terrain features that you're looking for in vegetation features?
0: Well, number one, I'm always looking for heavy security cover where I can look at a map and say a deer would definitely feel safe in the daylight that far away from any roads. Um, There's obstacles maybe to get there for most humans. They have a great wind advantage based on the the prevailing winds and thermals every day. They have a great place to bed and they have Fairly decent travel, maybe a ridge line, a saddle to go through, a big flat bench to go out on. They can get to it, check it, um, stay close to their bedding area, and then finally they've got to have great feed and water in a fairly decent disc You know, close enough to where they're, they they uh, don't have to move a lot to stay alive. But if they need to bug out from a predator, they can be bugged out and over a ridge and you know, into another thermal over the backside of the ridge in a second and be safe. So yeah, those are the type of things I look for. Uh, elevation is key out here. Most of my, the best community scrapes I've ever found have tended, usually tend to be at the top elevation of a doe family group and more at the bottom elevation of where a big old buck likes to live and hang out kind of as a hermit.
1: Okay. And, uh, so with these community scrapes it's it's funny, and again, I, I keep referencing you know Pennsylvania for a lot of the the listeners that are here, and how it compares is you know when when I look at a map, or if I'm say I'm out scouting in the spring, I'd love spring scouting like you do shed hunting and just and just scouting the country. I can say if I find uh, an area, that you know like has a thick vegetation cover like you're talking about whether it's an old clear cut or whatever it may be and i see a big you know pine or hemlock tree so it's a big conifer tree there i can almost bet there's going to be a big scrape or multiple scrapes underneath it and when you when you find those areas it's it's great like when you find for us again we don't have as many conifer trees as you do but when we have them you, you can go to those spots, and they'll normally that they, you can find some that'll have, you'll have one main like hub scrape and then you'll have like secondary scrapes around the tree. And when I find something like that, it's, it's definitely something I'm paying attention to.
0: Absolutely. You know, I'm talking about vegetation, it's species too. Um, there's certain vegetation that I don't know. I want to name them all right now, but there's certain types of plants and they're not always a tree, but really viney type vegetation that make incredible scrapes that my deer actually like better than the conifer trees. So so for me, when I see those types of plants, not a plant, but a, like a, we'll say a probably heard of ocean spray. Yeah, like a big bush that is, you know, 12, 15 feet tall with big overhanging branches. Mm-hmm. We'll say that. Yeah, those those types of plant species you know they're not quite a tree but they're not a short fat bush it's a true you know like a mountain elm or something like that uh when i get into spots that contain those species of plant and then i'm in heavy security cover and then i've got a terrain feature maybe like a big flat bench off of a long ridge or say a saddle that cuts through it boy you get into when you get all those pieces of the puzzle together it almost always works like clockwork. There'll be a big scrape there that's been there for years.
1: Yeah. And that's, so that would be similar to the, 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 the big, you know, bush type that, uh, plant species that you're talking about would be similar to our mountain laurel, which that we have. There you go. We have,
0: we have some of that out here. Yes. Oh, you do. Huh. Yeah. I just, yeah, we have, we have a, we have, we have a lot of different species, you know, and there's a, there's a few things that I keep, you know, kind of keep to myself, but yeah, that it's not always a tree that makes the best scrape. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. That mountain laurel, it can get so thick and nasty in some areas and they do make great scrapes. And, and a lot of times oh, they'll rub a lot of the mountain laurel too, but the, this, the scrapes are usually on the edge of them. When I can find where the mountain laurel meets the, the big timber here is a lot of times you'll find those scrapes right there or just coming out. Of you know there's some heavy trail systems within the mountain laurel almost unhuntable because it's so thick and you wouldn't be able to shoot without cutting it all out but just where it funnels out where some trails come out right there is where where i tend to find a lot of those those big scrapes
0: yeah those those inside edges are awesome when you get two different species and you got the right kind of species of trees and plants and you know i i see a lot of good scrapes on that interior cover but when you get inside of the interior when you see that change like you're talking about that's that you know these deer they run those edges like crazy and they jump into that thick and jump out of it and you know it's just it's just what they do to stay alive so yeah it's definitely a it's definitely a good thing to look for when you're out there once you're you know i always tell people you'll never see me hunting where there's a lot of daylight I I do not hunt where there's a lot of light, an open clear cut, a select cut that's too open. I just won't hunt it because the caliber of bucks I'm trying to kill are five years and older. They've got that figured out. They know that that means bad news for them. (laughs) So everything everything that I'm hunting is interior, away from roads, takes some time and effort to get into it. But boy, you get in there and you actually get to watch deer behave in, in their, you know, on their own terms.
1: so so when you're in like, um, and probably, I mean, it probably is affects them too with Idaho. Isn't the rut. Can't you hunt with a rifle too?
0: Yeah, I'm dealing with rifle hunters the whole month of the rut.
1: (laughs) That's rough. And I'm sure they want to be able to see. So they're hunting a lot of those open cuts rather than the thick stuff.
0: You've ever heard of combat hunting? That's what we call it out here. It's literally the, what what I experience and get away from on purpose. Luckily, I have big enough country to get away from that in some spots if I'm willing to work for it and do the do the hoof, you know, hiking. Um, you literally experience four wheelers all day long, riding the roads all day, every day, daylight till dark. And this country's broken up and full of roads because of the logging. I mean, you can look at it on Google and see there's logging roads everywhere. So yeah, for, for me to get away from that, it usually means about a mile off of any road or more. And then the deer start acting like normal deer would, where they feel like they're not being hunted in there by humans.
1: Okay. Yeah. I, I, that, that would suck to, we're not allowed to have ATVs, you know, and four wheelers and, and everything riding up and down the roads luckily that would be that would be a pain in the ass to have to deal with that (laughs)
0: it's a freaking it's freaking nightmare and and then you deal with wolves and lions so (laughs) you you know hunting out here you got to be very I tell you know my son is getting to be a really good whitetail hunter and he learned early on because he's been to Iowa with me and and he's got to go to Oklahoma with me and he learned early on dad you know he said dad this ain't the same and I said no and the, the thing that has taught him is that you have to be resilient and never let anything bother you and just adjust accordingly. And, and obviously set up initially before you deal with that set up to where you're, you know, you're not just spending all your time setting up in a beautiful spot. And then when the two month long rifle season rolls in and it's two months, it's not quite two months. It's October 10th through December 1st. Oh. That's the rifle season out here.
2: That is ridiculous. It's,
0: it, it, it's stupid. It's it's ridiculous that we still have a few bucks, and it's only because of how vast and rugged and covered our terrain is, we still get a few bucks that make it. You know, people see what I've killed, and they think, you must be in a honey hole. Uh, no. <laughs>
2: the, kind of
0: bucks I'm tra- the kind of bucks that I'm killing that are five, six, seven years old, and that Score from 150s to 190s. Uh, these are like 220s, 230s, 200 pluses in other states. They're rare. You know, they're really, really rare. Um, and that's just what it is. Uh, and you know, I invite anybody to come and give it a shot and see, you know, what it really is. It's it can be, it can be very disheartening. I think especially to a new bow hunter that's trying to hunt the big woods out here on public land. And I'm talking public land. I'm not referring to somebody's two thousand acre ranch out here. That's a whole different ballgame. That that that's completely different. Only thing they're really dealing with there on a place like that would be some predators. Yeah. But yeah, I'm a you know, I love the public land. I love how I have millions of acres to hunt and I purposely stayed here instead of moving and teaching somewhere else and taking my family. I purposely stayed here because I like what these whitetails have taught me about hunting.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy to me. And, and with, with that rifle season, it's amazing that they get that old, but like you said, you know, with, with the, I'm sure the wet climate that you have and that just the everything else with the terrain that they're, they don't get that old by being dumb though either. So <laughs> one finding one of that size is probably rare and then being able to actually kill him is a whole another game yeah for
0: sure 100 percent. it's uh it's a, you know finding them on trail cameras one thing putting a game plan together that works to kill him before he gets bumped you know i was hunting a really big deer early september big deer that's six years old two big deer and i just expected every year that a wolf, a mountain, a pack of wolves, mountain lion, or a bear is probably going to screw it up for me. But every once in a while, and I've killed some dandies in September and August, every, you know, about every five years I get to the buck before something moves him. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. And are you, are you focusing on single deer? Like when you find one on your camera, you want to hunt, are you trying to kill that specific deer or are you trying to kill just you know, a certain age class?
0: Oh, I single them guys out. I I don't <laughs> think I have killed it. I don't think I've killed a deer that was a surprise in the last 15 years.
1: Really? That's impressive. Now,
0: every deer, every deer I kill is a target. Um, a lot of my bucks that I kill, I've watched them grow up and live through mountain lion attacks and get big and get older and get beat up, but still show up the next year. And it's I've watched them grow up on my scrape trail cameras, you know, now that I'm running cameras since I think 06 was the first year I started running cameras. And boy, did that really give me a lot of great intelligence as far as just really confirming what I was doing before cameras.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you think, all right. So if say someone from the East or, or Midwest or whatever, wanted to come hunt these whitetails, do you think like, uh, I mean, you do a you know a ton of scouting to figure them out. Is it possible to come out there for a, a week or so and and be able to to get on them, or is it? Do you think that it's really? I mean, your your preseason scouting and stuff that that helps helps with that. Well, I'm sure it does, but I mean, do you think it's it's possible for for that to happen?
0: Yeah, it, I think any intelligent dude that really understands whitetails and understands how to read a map and has an idea of where to go on a map to get away from some pressure, get into some really good cover, and that has the discipline, the toughness to handle cold weather. And boy, if you go in and find where deer are using an area, especially if you go in and build a big mock scrape, or if you get lucky and get in on some terrain and find a big, what I call a community hub scrape, uh, you're going to do well. And, and you, can, you can mock these big bucks up right away too if you're in the right area because these big deer in my country, there's not a lot of deer. They know each other. It's like going to a small school. When you go to a school that has 10 kids in the graduating class, you know everything about those kids their whole life growing up. When you go to a school that has 500 kids in your graduating class, you don't know half the kids that walk you know walk on graduation day. Well, the kind of deer I'm hunting are the kind that come from a small graduating class. They know everything about each other. They know where each other lives, where they like to bed, where the, de- the girls like to hang out. And when you introduce a brand new buck to that scenario, my bucks hunt me.
1: Yeah, says <laughs> so, so calling pretty effective then with that with that kind of situation. Not
0: call, no, just scent calling just that. Is- my bu- my bucks get called big time in the rifle seasons over and over and over every day.
1: Okay. So it's sensor. Okay. The
0: scent, scent is they, these deer live and die by their nose out here because of the predators. And they literally live and die chasing does by their nose. They, they, they trust their nose way more than they trust their eyes. In my opinion. Now, Don't get me wrong, visuals are important, building a scrape right, making it look right to them if you build a mock. I mean, it's got to be authentic, and it better not have any human scent in it at all. You know, I I treat my mock scrapes just like trapping, no different than a trapper. Knee-high rubber boots, latex gloves, I mean, it's a science. But if you make it look right and smell right, and the thing I like about synthetics is all protein-based scents rot and get old, and that's not real to a deer anything protein based will rot and stink. It stinks. If it stinks in the bottle, it's no good. And the reason I like the synthetic is it gives off a scent that does not rot or stink. So anyway, all that to say, yeah, it can be done, but it's not easy. Um, I've helped a few guys in the past. And as soon as I got them in the security cover and talked to them about, and I'm talking about out of state guys, they've called me and I, and I I just shoot straight with them You know, I helped a guy two years ago, called me, told him what to do, where to go in at. It's an old area I used to hunt. I said, get inside of that heavy security cover, meaning big timber, big timber, get out on these certain type of terrain features. You'll find where the deer like these features to rut on and where they like to scrape and and communicate with each other. I said, you'll probably kill a nice buck. Guy sends me a picture of a 183 and said, thanks, Troy.
1: (laughs) That's insane. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah he was blown away and now he's killing a big deer every year and i'm not talking to 183 but every year now he's seeing mature bucks and he's happy
1: yeah that's that's awesome that's a, that's the kind of hunting that for whitetails that i i like i mean i i think it's cool the the midwest stuff and everything but i just love that type of that type of country trying to outsmart those big old you know whitetails like that and and it's it's interesting to me so when you're saying, like, how, how are you, I guess this is just a, a personal question, but how are you hiking into these areas with rubber boots on? Isn't that tough?
0: Well, when I build my scrapes, um, I, you know, I make sure I'm clean. And a lot of time most of my, most of my um, scrape building takes place in the summer. Okay. So, I can drive a lot closer. Does that make sense? Because if you try to drive close to these big deer or ride a four-wheeler close to them or get close to them making noise during the season, it's a waste of time. So a lot of the stuff I build in the summer is the rubber boots and doing it all that way. If I build something during the hunting season, they're going to, you know what, they're going to get to deal with my Hoffman boots. <laughs> yeah. That's just part of it. But, but I spray them down. Yep. I'm super clean. My clothes never come in a house ever. They're never inside of a house for four months. Everything's hung outside. I never put my clothing in a, in a bag that could collect moisture and have a weird smell to it. Everything for me is aired out, always aired out, always hanging on a limb. If I'm sleeping in my pickup overnight to try to kill a buck, my clothes, I don't care if it's zero degrees out, they're hanging out on a limb all night. So I'm real clean. Um, Again, that Buck Fever Synthetics, I spray down with Vanishing Hunter. It's incredible. Uh, That stuff really does knock your scent molecules down. I don't believe you can eliminate your human scent. And then something we haven't talked about yet, which is the number one key to killing these big deer, is I am meticulous and dissect the wind, the thermals and the prevailings on how I can get in, get out, use a terrain-type barrier to help me have a wind advantage on a buck that thinks he has the perfect wind.
1: So I- explain how you're, how are using them? So, and, and I mean, thermals and, and the prevailing winds and everything are, are common here in, in, in the, the mountain type terrain, the Appalachian mountains, but explain how you're using those to your advantage to kind of access your spots and, and set up on them.
0: Right. So if I'm going to go in and hunt a tree stand and I'm going to get in there at daylight, what's the prevail what's the thermal going to be doing going downhill, right? And two hours later, or roughly an hour and a half, two hours later, depending on how quick the earth heats up, what's it going to do? It's going to switch and start moving uphill, correct? Yep. Okay. So I take that information. I have my location picked. I have a great community hub or scrape there. I've never, I do not hunt without a scrape. I don't do it. I always have a scrape that existed, and I overmark or I build one. So that's already there. So I'm giving a buck everything he likes. And then I enter my stand based on what the thermal's doing. So I may walk into a stand one direction and climb a hill to get to it because of the downhill thermal in the morning, and then leave climbing out the top of the mountain and going across the ridge to get back because of the uphill, you know, or the prevailing wind. So every day is a different equation based on how the thermal's meet and change with the prevailing wind that day.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
0: W- yes, I do everything, and I talk about this in my seminars. The number one factor for me every day is what that wind is doing and how it's working with the thermals on how I get in and get out, what time I want to go in and leave, and that's probably one reason why I'm an all-day sitter when it comes to the revving time of the year because, You know, my bucks are public land bucks that get hunted hard in the morning and hunted hard in the afternoon. I kill a lot of big deer at noon.
1: Yep, that's I. I love the midday during the rut. One because I don't want to walk all the way back, (laughs) you know, if it need to. But I learned a lesson from my dad, who's a way better white tail hunter than than I am, and he he taught me when I was younger. I had a problem sitting for long periods of time, and I'd climb out at like ten in the morning, and he'd be like, "You need to sit there." You know, he's like that. Middle of the day is the best time for them to come through there. It's a really good time. They're out cruising after the does are bedded down, everything. And and uh, I got burned a few times before I learned my lesson to to sit through that. That that big body deer I was telling you about uh, shot a few years ago. That was right at noon last year. I had my best encounter. It was like twelve oh five. I I love midday.
0: Yeah. yeah, and you know, people don't give enough credit to the fact that if you get in and out of your stand you just created an intrusion and every time you intrude an area on a big deer you're lessening your odds just even if it's just strictly from noise you know and you're adding more scent to the area so absolutely I I try to get in and give it everything I got for it. You know, I, I'm an all day guy all the time. And, you know, I've killed a lot of bucks in September, October, and December too. So it's not just because of the rut. Actually, I've killed the majority of my big bucks outside of the rut, believe it or not.
1: Okay. And do you think that's because they're more patternable at that time?
0: No, I think it's because I'm simply out there doing it. And um, putting the time in, in an excellent area because my deer address licking branches all the time. They check them two or three times a week in the daylight. My big bucks do.
1: And that so all I, comes I, back I, I to your it. security cover and you're in an area where they feel safe to move around the day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. These are social animals that want to know who's around. They're these big deer want to keep tabs on what girls are going to be available in a month or two months. They want to know. And they also want to know what young up and comers are maybe going to challenge them a little bit for some of the girls. Because, you know, the one thing I do have going for me out here, we talked about numbers, my buck to doe ratio is probably two does to every buck and that's pretty good.
1: Yeah. That's excellent.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and I've, I've hunted places where it's three to one, maybe four to one but in the mountains my big bucks are survivors they're pretty freaking tough and they're smart and a lot of times it's six does at a scrape and six bucks and there's one good breeder buck or two there so you know that that is one thing i like is the fact that my ratio forces these bucks to compete which i'm sure plays into my hand when it comes to these scrapes
1: yeah. And I'm sure if you didn't have that, that kind of pressure that you do during rifle season with guys calling that, that calling would probably be really effective if it was unpressured. Calling,
0: yeah. Calling, calling used to be effective when I was young. I had a lot less people living up here. Everybody's moved to North Idaho. Um, they call us Coeur California now. Um,
2: <laughs> really, but
0: anyway, all that, just, all, yeah, there, yeah, it's getting pretty bad. I mean, you know, here's a native Idahoan, so I'm a little biased, but yeah. anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, the, everybody's, everybody's a bow hunter now TV, really, you know, everybody's a hunter. Everybody's a hunter. Now everybody's calling. There's a million gimmicks out there. So yeah, it, it's ridiculous what I actually sometimes hear way off. You know, guys, I've actually watched a guy walk down a ridge one time while I was sitting in a tree stand out in the middle of nowhere. He'd walk 20 yards and rattle, smoke a cigarette, walk 20 more yards and rattle, walk 50 yards. And he did this off this ridge one day and I heard him for three hours.
2: (laughs) Coffin.
0: Uh You know, I've had guys literally find my big scrapes that I've made. I have trail cameras on them. They don't even notice the trail cameras and literally put a climber in a tree. And then I walk in and say, Hey, what's up out in the middle of nowhere. And they'll say, Oh, I found these huge scrapes here. I'm hunting. And I say, you see my trail cameras and my stand 25 yards away, 30 feet up. Oh, I didn't see it. I'm sorry. And they bail.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I mean, that's what that one thing that, that at least in the area I'm hunting, that's, uh, it's been lucky is, and it hasn't been the same when I hunted Southern Ohio, which is. A lot of steep country and, and big timber where it gets it's a little more open, you get a little more people calling and doing stuff. But where I'm at in, in Pennsylvania, calling has been extremely effective. Almost every, well, actually, probably every buck I've killed during the rut has been called in by a, you know, like a bleat and then a grunting sequence of chasing and also using like a deep growl type, you know, almost like a, they call it a buck roar. If it, the like just a deep like fighting grunt they'll come in with their hair standing up and i was assuming that would be similar to where you're at but apparently that's definitely not the case
0: well one thing we might not be talking about here is what age of bucks are you killing how old are they truly how old are you killing with calling
1: yeah they're anywhere well the the oldest one was eight and a half but most of them are in uh three to five range
0: okay I agree with you there. I can call in a three or four year old every day and I, you know, I'll get a 155 inch four year old a lot, which most guys are tickled to shoot and I don't blame them, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I won't even shoot a buck anymore unless he's at least five and a half.
1: Okay. Yeah. So So, we're talking about a little bit different deer there.
0: (laughs) Right, right. The calling will work on my younger deer. Um, The one thing I really like calling for is if I get into a spot and I really can feel and sense based on not hearing any vehicles in the mountains. And, you know, a lot of my drives are 15, 20 miles off the pavement. So I'm truly hunting backwoods whitetails, but you still hear a rig come up into the drainage or whatever. But when I get into a spot where it's a real quiet day and I know nobody's near me for probably five, three or four miles, probably not five, but probably three or four miles at your shot. Then I, then if everything feels right, it's the right time of year, I, I will do a little calling if it's a little slow, especially if I think, based on my intel, that I got a big buck kind of hiding out real close to me, maybe within, you know, earshot. Which in this country, in these big mountains, they can be a quarter mile away and they'll hear you well. I mean, it's just like deadly silent out here some days in the big mount in the big woods. So they can hear you. So yeah, I will call a little, but where I where I like to call, based on a five year old buck or older is I like to call when one gets by me, but it doesn't present me a shot, mm-hmm. but I want to call him back and take a look at him and try to kill him. And, you know, then I'll rattle or I'll, you, I usually always start with a social doe grunt because that's non-threatening. And if that doesn't pull him, then I might rattle, but I've got, I've, I've actually been really successful with snort wheezy.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so,
0: so, So yeah, I didn't want to come across as I don't call. I'm just very selective about when I call.
1: Yep. You're not, you're not just sitting there calling all the time or doing what that guy did walking down that Ridge. Not like, uh, someone bugling as, (laughs) as they're running ridges. Yeah.
0: It's the same concept as dudes that just don't stop bugling and let every elk in the country know that they're human, you know? Yep. Um, we've we've done really good the biggest buck my son ever shot he was 13 he shot that big 160s class we snort wheezed him right under us
1: that's awesome did when they when they come in like that they coming in pretty aggressively like looking for a fight
0: well yeah and our bucks compete so you know you know bucks compete if your trail cameras are full of broken tines and our our bucks beat the hell out of each other all the time and they're big and they're ornery but yeah he uh We had it made with him. We had a doe in our scrape. We had a two-year-old buck. Within 20 yards of the doe, watching her in the scrape, the big deer came in above us using the perfect thermal and prevailing wing combination to look down towards the scrape and see what was down there and started scent checking. And I don't, you know, that doe wasn't ready yet. That's why that little buck was hanging with her. She wasn't ready yet. But as soon as he saw those deer down there and saw that little buck, he kind of, he got bristled up and he actually snort wheezed at the little buck to run him off first. And as soon as he did that, I hit him with one right back and that buck was in our lap.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And like you said, they're, they're, they know every, all the other deer in the area and, you know, with that, there's like, who the hell is coming into my area thinking that they're going to, you know run the place and muck, you know?
0: Absolutely. And he was surprised that that little buck snort at him. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's funny.
0: You know, he thought, or he thought he did, but it was, you know, it's just, it's just common sense biology of a deer. And I, you know, everybody has to take a look at their own deer hood, deer herd, excuse me, uh, all of your variables that you're dealing with. And then, factor everything in with predators, wind, all of that, and just really, you know, not cut corners. And one of the most important points I try to teach in my seminars out West is just don't cut corners at all. And when you think you're going to cut a corner, make yourself not cut the corner and do it right. You'll be surprised what you end up seeing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think just one of the things that you said that really stood out to me is just like your access and, you know, going into the stand and going out, Like that's, that's something where it's very, very easy to cut corners, especially after you've been hunting a lot during the season. And, and from the way it sounds like with you, it's no matter what you're going to do it right. You're not going to cut those corners.
0: Yes. It's, it has to be meticulous. It has to be, you have to be willing to go. You might have to walk an extra half hour to an hour some days to get to your stand. Again, I'm hunting a hub, a social spot. So the last thing I want to do is have to burn, or the last thing I want to do is burn a really good spot out quick and ruin that spot. Mm-hmm. I take I take great pride in being able to hunt that same scrape for fifteen years, a, 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 you know, or twenty years, or ten years, or six years, or what you know. I just take a lot of pride in doing that, and the way to do it is to literally dissect every trip in and out, knowing how you got to get in and get out without just contaminating the area with human scent, intrusion, noise, everything. So yeah, that's, that's super important. And then I also have my run and gun set up. You know, my, my deer get bumped. I have, I hunt public land and I have guys walk right through my spots sometime and I'm ready that I usually have five or six great bucks that I try to hunt every year and at least two top end bucks or three so that I don't have to just hunt one spot. And then I've got a run and gun set up to where if I know the deer have kind of moved on me or using a different ridge or a different terrain, uh, maybe the next ridge over, I don't, you know, if I go, I'll jump out of my stand sometimes when it's really slow and I'll go for a walk right in the middle of the season. And if there's snow on the ground, I'll go hang that run and gun setup that I have. And I use that lone wolf custom gear stand that's seven pounds. I usually carry four sticks or excuse me, six sticks with it. I do like to hunt high because of the wind out here and all that to say, I'll throw something up and get right on top of the deer right back with them when they get moved. Heck, a a lion or a pack of wolves will move your deer sometimes a complete drainage over.
1: Yeah. Uh, How, how far, so when you're talking, how far do you think that would go? So how far would it be to the other end of the drainage that they could be bumped to?
0: Well, some of the drainages I hunt are just map or five to 10 miles long. So if you're talking actual foot on the ground walking, you better almost double it because of the elevation changes. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what you end up doing is driving over into another drainage, getting on the hot sign and hanging and hunting if you need to. And because I run so many trail cameras, we monitor bucks on different community scrapes that often are four or five miles away and they will, those bucks will make their rounds to those scrapes in about a week's time.
1: So when you're, when you're monitoring with these trail cameras, it just brought up something I was thinking of. Do you, are are you checking them often throughout the season or how are you, how are you keeping up on what they're doing or using like past knowledge a lot of times?
0: Um, A little bit of both. I I have a rule that I only check a trail camera during the season if I'm hunting that stand and that scrape, or if everything's dead and I just need to go check to find a big deer and find out where he is. So those are my two rules. So only if I hunt it or if I'm just, nothing's going on at any of my spots and I got to go check one of my other spots. And then my rule in the summer is I let my deer do their thing. I leave them be. I try not to intrude. So in the summer, I only check my cameras
1: once a month. Okay. Okay. That makes sense.
0: I leave them. I leave them alone. I, my big deer tolerate very little intrusion at all.
1: Man, this sounds, I mean, it sounds very similar to, um, I mean, I, I know it's different, but hunting in the, when I hunted last year in the bow zone in Alberta and just like, the The way that their deer take just about zero intrusion too, and that was like one of the the big things that when I was hunting up there that they were talking about was just no matter what, just trying to let them do their thing and just staying out of there as much as possible.
0: Yeah, I've always said hunt a buck on his terms. You know, let him think, let him think he's safe. Uh, I, I always hunt a buck on the wind that he wants and I just get off to the edge of it I split those hairs I hunt high I never cross his actual favorite path walking into a scrape I always come in from the side I usually always have some type of terrain based feature that protects me helps me out steers him around me maybe a little bluff or you know a cliff you know not a cliff but a steep bluff behind me or maybe uh, a little tiny bit of an opening inside of the timber that's 30 yards across that he'll walk through this deep timber through instead of cutting across that little open. I always try to set up and use something that's there for me or wherever I put my mock to help me a little bit so that he can literally walk in and think he's safe.
1: When are,
2: I never
0: hunt and kill, but I, excuse me, go ahead.
1: No, no, no. Keep going. Keep going with your point.
0: I was just going to say, I have never killed a big whitetail out here in the mountains when the wind was blowing in my face, ever.
1: Yep. It's always been somewhat of an off wind. That's okay.
0: It, it, it has always been with the big deer. And I'm, when I say big deer, the five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, I've killed them up to 11 years old, aged by biologists. The old bucks have always had a wind advantage, always to them. Now, sometimes it's a 45 across their face, but they at least have that 45 coming at them. And mm-hmm. it's, it's usually a thermal. It's usually a thermal they're using during the midday to address and come in and check a scrape. Uh, and I'm always just off to the edge, and I've, got a, I've selected a tree that's positioned where I can get in and out of it, not cross their path, but also have some type of barrier that kind of steers them around me.
1: So when you're finding these these stand setups, when are you hanging those stands? Um, I'm guessing it's a lot way before the season.
0: Yeah, it. I would say 75% of my stuff, I get it figured out in the summer, but 25% of it is adapting, changing based on what the deer do and going right in and literally within 20 minutes being able to break all that down in my mind and get set in the right tree. And you know, that, that comes with a lot of years. Yeah. That wasn't easy early on. I mean, it's easier, a lot easier now because, you know, I really can just feel what the wind's doing. I know what it likes to do in these mountains. I know what time it's going to switch on me. I can just process all of that and then I'll pick a tree. You know, one thing I always tell guys too: always try to have the high ground on a big buck. So if you've got a little bit of slope in the mountains or a steep slope, if you can somehow position your stand not to cut him off what he likes where he likes to come from what winds he likes to use to get there always try to have the high ground on him not be on the lower side of him you know not on that lower side of that slope that that that'll get you in trouble a lot because if he comes in on a higher you know almost eye to eye with you that's that's tough to pull off with a big deer
1: mhm and so i uh, I'm just that would probably be tough with with the wind and especially with the thermals and everything to be able to do that. Say, what if he's running like just over the edge of the ridge, are you going to be setting up above him or are you still going to try to be on that lower side, but get up high enough?
0: Oh, I never hunt the lower side. So that's a, that's what I was trying to say. Okay. So if I got a buck running, if I got a buck running, say two thirds at the top of a ridge running it a lot, but not right on top, I will always come in on him from the other side of the ridge I'll hike that damn mountain all the way up up on the backside where he likes to run. I'll slip in above him. My stand will be above him where he really likes to travel, and I won't cross him. You know what I mean by not crossing him? I'll never walk down and leave my scent right where he likes to cruise through. I might hang a trail camera there, and then you know most of my trail cameras, I hang up high, 12 feet, spy high system. That way my bucks don't even see them, and I'll have them back. And usually my trail cameras have the high ground too on the buck.
2: Okay. So I don't have
0: to crop. So I, so I don't have to, you know, treat your trail camera just like your stand placement.
1: mm Mm-hmm. And why,
0: why would you, you know, I was, yeah. Why would you want to set your stand perfect and have your trail camera where you cross his path?
1: Yep. No, I'm, I'm following you now. So when you're set up above them like that, and what about, I mean, maybe, what about when the thermals are going down, you know, first thing in the morning, is, is, was that, is that going to throw you off a little bit or is that maybe you're not going in at that point?
0: Well, if he's cruising through there in the first thing in the morning, then no, I can't do that. But let's say, let's say he's addressing that scrape every day in the middle of the day or in the evening, then I know I'm money, but yes, you're correct. You've got to pay attention to those exact times on your camera. Mm-hmm. And what, what I've learned with my big deer is they will run certain pathways obviously on a west wind they'll want they'll run certain pathways and I'm talking about feeding early season everything not just rut they will totally eat and move with the wind to their advantage every day and what that does is it dictates what side of the mountain they may feed on that day
1: hmm okay
0: does
1: that make sense? Yep. Yep. No, I'm, I'm, following you now that, that yeah, definitely makes sense. And that's where, I mean, yeah, you're definitely, I mean, you're intel from your cameras and I'm sure past experience too. And in, in certain areas, it really helps you out.
0: Yeah. I, my son, one time we were, go, I'll give you a good example. We were hunting a big ridge line. And my son said, dad, how come we're not going to go hunt a specific buck today? And I said, that's because the wind's coming out of the Northwest and he won't feed on the side of the ridge. He won't pop out where we need him to because the wind isn't working in his favor. He'll feed on the other side of the ridge because the wind's coming out of the North. So he's going to feed towards the North. Mm -hmm. He goes, okay, okay. So we're not going to hunt him today. I said, no, he won't even be there. So what I've always done since cameras first came out is I've cross-referenced every trail camera picture of a big deer and then I look at what the wind was doing that day and I know what the thermals are doing at that time so I write it all down that's what I did early on in my you know as a hunter now I just process it yeah he's only going to feed he's only going to feed on the south side of a mountain when he actually has a south wind in his face to get there
1: yep okay or
0: at least a west at least a west wind to cross you know 45ing yep so, and the trail cameras prove it over and over. Now your young deer, your younger bucks, your does, they don't care.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But these survivors, these five, six, seven, eight year old deer, even a four and a half year old will make a lot of dumb mistakes in my opinion. But these five, six, seven year old deer out here in the mountains anyway, that have had lions on their ass their whole life. Trust me. They do one thing. They live by their nose.
1: <laughs> And no, and then even, even here, I mean, that applies what you're saying there is just like my, my wheels are turning into my head because I'm realizing that there's probably a, a lot of scenarios where I'm definitely not as careful as I, I need to be, you know, with that and, and really utilizing the, the, the wind as far as the way the buck would be using it for his favor. And yeah, I mean, that's make, I, I hunted this deer for this one specific deer for four years and I had one encounter with him that I ended up missing the deer but other than that I could not catch up to him and he was at that age I mean when I think he'd ended up dying uh in the winter time uh, I believe he would have been nine at that point and I I just, but I you know looking back on it there's a lot of things where I didn't know I was cutting corners but <laughs> I was that time and he was on to me the whole time
0: Absolutely. And I've made a lot of mistakes in the past and learned the hard way. And I'm a competitive guy that hates to make mistakes more than once.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So for me, when I make a mistake, I kick myself in the ass about it and say, that's it. You're not doing that again. So over the years, it's really manifested for me into absolutely just intriguing, exciting Every time I go hunt, I know I'm in the game. I won't hunt a stand if I'm not in the game. I won't hunt a stand wishing and hoping on luck that a buck's going to show up with a wind that doesn't work for him. Mm -hmm. Could that happen in the rut? Absolutely. If it's the rut and I have does that are doing what they need to do for me at a scrape, then I'll hunt it because I know that's the one factor that might suck him in. But he's still going to use a wind that works for him. And I'm going to make sure when he circles in behind those does, and you've probably seen this, those big bucks, even following does or our bucks out here, they'll circle 50 yards out away from where the does travel in to make sure they have wind.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. I, yeah, I and know exactly I'll, what you're talking about.
0: My, my big deer will literally stand in the timber 50 yards from my does where my does are hitting a scrape or working through. And they'll watch and watch and watch and make sure everything's fine. Then they'll commit. And then that's when we're killing them.
1: And and I can even think of, it's a little bit of a different scenario, but this buck that I was just telling you about there, when he was, he would have been five and a half when I had the the first encounter with him. He, it was like November, November 14th. It was the last day of our season. Our season closes relatively early. And, uh, I had, I had grunted. I was, I did a a blind grunt in his crick bottom setup, and he came, he came in out of nowhere. But what he did was he stayed 80 yards out from me and did a giant circle until he got down where it was almost downwind. And I ended up was able to, to get a shot at him there. But I mean, he was, was not like the other deer. He wasn't coming in on a string. He, you know, once he heard that noise and knew that, you know, there's a potential for another buck there. He wasn't coming straight in. He did a big loop right. through the cover right. and, and until he got down to that other side. I mean, it all makes sense.
0: Yep. And, you know, I only bow hunt. I don't, I, I don't have, I, I love all hunting. I want everybody to hunt and enjoy it, but I like the challenge of, you know, I've shot one whitetail buck in my lifetime over 30 yards. Everything else has been two yards to 25
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So so for me, the game, the the in the just the adrenaline rush for me is getting that five, six, seven year old bucket twelve yards, fifteen yards. Um I want slam dunk shots. I I get one chance at these great big mountain whitetails and that's it. You screw it up, you ain't seeing him for a year or 2
2: mm-hmm.
0: So for me it so for me I'm I want that sucker in my lap. I want a slam dunk shot, no missing, you know, don't lose deer type of thing. And, and nobody is perfect. So that really helps me personally knowing that when I get that buck right in my face, he's probably dead. You know, he's in trouble. Um, don't get nervous. That just comes from a lot of years. I, I don't even get pumped up till after I kill one. Um I've always been decent, pretty darn good. I, I think it comes from playing ball and being a, a, a running back. You get the ball so much you had to teach yourself to be calm before every play,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know, and not give it away. And I swear, just just being able to control your adrenaline helps and take that deep breath and just chill. Uh, and, you know, I, it's just all a, it's all a learned process. It just doesn't happen overnight. And I talk to a lot of young hunters and they say, well, how do you beat Buck Fever? Go spend 35, 40 years in the mountains
1: with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's and, no shortcut there. <laughs>
0: and
2: care,
0: yeah, and, and care about it and work on it. And, you know, I've had really good friends of mine get Buck Fever bad and just shoot through their antlers. And, you know, it's just a matter of as soon as I feel that that energy starting to load up inside, I just take that quiet, deep breath. And then I just change my mindset. And I say, it's time to kill this son of a bitch. You know, it's time to get it done. Mm-hmm. And then it's fun. Then it, then it, everything goes silent and it's like the world just stops. And those 30 seconds or one minute or 10 seconds or 20 seconds, it's like the most incredible experience there is. When you watch that arrow go through them, they're shocked. They have no idea you're there. They've lived for five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And it's just, to me, it's the greatest thing
1: there is. <laughs> oh yeah. You're, you're getting me fired up just <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> oh man. You know, it's,
0: just, it's, and, it's, 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 we're, we're addicted to it. You know, it's, it's a positive, healthy addiction.
1: It, it is. And it's, it's crazy. Like I, I wish that I wouldn't have found, uh, you know, a, a love for, elk hunting and trying to do that too because I feel like it throws me off so much like when I came back from Idaho to elk hunting here I felt just completely lost because I need to be fully into the the game you know and, and I call it a game just as far as like with with whitetails I I need to be fully invested in it and when I'm when I'm in that mode it's it's hard to it's hard to tear me out of it I love it
0: I'm just like you I relate I I killed a lot of bulls I love the archery elk hunt. I love that adrenaline rush too. That's a completely different, unbelievable game
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> but but for me personally, there is nothing like killing a big white tail buck ninja ninja quiet, ninja set up. He has no clue you're there, and oh, it's just it's elk elk are real close, but for me personally. Those old whitetails are the smartest animals in these mountains.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it's crazy. Like, I don't know. I just, I have a thing and it sounds like you and I are similar from this, this mindset, but I just, I love the challenge of it. And just like, that's my favorite part of it is just trying to, cause I, I, I screw up a thousand times more than I succeed with it. And, and it just it fuels me to keep trying. Why, why did I mess that up? How, what was the you know scenario and just keep analyzing it and trying to learn more and talking to guys like you. I mean, that just, it helps so much. I mean, I'm, my wheels are spinning in my head and you know, just sitting here listening to it. So that's, uh, oh, that's awesome. Well,
0: well, well to all the listeners keep after it. It is, there's nothing like it and it, you know, iron sharpens iron. So you want to be really good at something, take on something challenging. You want to just, you know, get immediate gratification, then go do something that's easy. And, and everybody's wired a little different. I'm not an immediate gratification guy. I, you know, I spend all year to get 10 seconds of, of, uh, success, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm cool with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Troy, are you, are you still whitetail hunting? Are you done this year?
0: Oh no, I'm just, I'm just getting started. Um, my My son is heavy into high school football, and, and like I said, that's a big part of our life. So I put family first. I've spent a lot of time traveling, and we don't, my wife and I, it's all about our kids. But I'm just getting started with the whitetails. I hunted early season, uh, obviously could kill a deer, but I've got a couple just incredible bucks this year on public land that I'm hunting. And I will go until the last day, the last second hunting those deer. You know, I kind of have a rule at the end of December when our season closes. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll always try to have a top five, but I try to hunt my top one or two until the last three days of the entire season. Um, and, and I hunt Idaho and Washington every year, all public land. I hunt Montana when I find a big buck over there on public land because it's a draw, so I have to put in. But I only hunt over there when I find one I like. And then, so I'm, I'm, I'm positioned up here where I live, really close to Washington and Montana. Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, I'm uh, um, sorry about that. How do I get rid of this? Somebody trying to call me. Anyway, I'm just going to talk through this. I, I'll just let it be. They'll hang up in a second. So
2: <laughs> I don't hear I'm it gonna, on my you know, end. You, so.
0: <laughs> okay, good. I'm sorry. So back to what I was saying is I also love to travel out of state. Um, one thing that's taught me a ton about whitetails is getting my butt out of the Northwest, getting out of the mountains, learning from really good whitetail hunters. So, you know, I'm really good friends with Andre DeQuisto, the guy that made the lone wolf tree stands who now owns lone wolf custom gear, which is different Mm -hmm. and Cody and the DeQuisto family. And I film for whitetail addictions TV with those guys. Uh, I've got some incredible friends in Ohio, Steve Pinkston, Justin Hollinsworth, Mike Greiner. We're all a part of that team. I hunt with those guys because you never quit learning. You're always learning, even in a different habitat, hunt with my buddy, Jeb Bailey down in Oklahoma guy, you know, giant bucks, unbelievable country. One of the biggest deer I've ever killed was down there. Um, but anyway, all that to say, I've got a ton of hunting in front of me, three States, maybe four, depending on how my teaching schedule and time works out, but for sure, Idaho, Washington, and one more state this year.
1: Oh, nice. That's, that's awesome. And, uh, is, is, so is usually your home state, Idaho, your biggest, like that's your, that's your baby. That's, uh, the one that you're looking forward to the most.
0: I I love, I absolutely love Idaho and Washington both. I I would, I would hunt Montana just as much, but it's a draw. So I hunt the two over the counter. So I hunt the two over the counter tags equally.
1: Okay. Yeah, and like I live that.
0: right on the border.
1: Okay, I was going to say where I'm, that's nice. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I you know I I'm literally sitting right now in my classroom, and I am five minutes from the state of Washington.
1: Oh, you're that close. <laughs>
0: yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and, and you know, I love to get out of state. Like I said, you, I love river bottoms. I love hunting farm country. I absolutely, just dig going to different places. For me, it's kind of a, it's easy. And I don't want to say easier. That's not the right word. And that pisses people off, but it is in a way to where I can relax. I can relax a little when I go out of state because simply just from the terrain is different. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so peaceful and enjoyable for me to go out of state and just take a little bit of a break from the, because the mountains, you can't cheat a mountain. A mountain's going to give you mountain conditions, mountain, cold, mountain drives, trees falling in the road, wolves coming. I mean, it's just different. So when I, when I do get out of state, I love it. Just it's kind of a mental chill break for me. And the deer are really fun to hunt. The numbers are usually way higher and I tend to see a little more of a tolerant deer versus what I see out here on public land.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. And so where do you think your third state's going to be this year then?
0: Where do I think my what?
1: Your third state. You said you're going to have one more state. Do you have any idea where I, you're going to go yet?
0: Well, I I know I've got an open invite to Ohio. I went out to Ohio for the first time last year with Hollinsworth and Griner and Pinkston. And those guys are all whitetail addictions guys. Just unbelievable dudes. Great people. I know I have an open invite out there obviously let's be real life is expensive and it costs a lot. And I got boys in college and high school. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's something I hope I get to go do this year. But if I don't, I'm going to jump in my truck. I've already talked to a good friend, a, a really good guy that's, that said, come on over. He lives just over the Montana border and I'm going to hunt North Dakota. Okay. Public land. Yeah. Public land in North Dakota. I'm going to go hit the Missouri river country.
1: That that's one of my other dream hunts to hunt whitetails in that country. It looks just, just the terrain itself looks epic to, to go hunt them.
0: Yeah. It's I, I, I've hunted North Dakota on the East side and driven through there. And you know how all of us whitetail hunter guys are, we drive through an area and we're looking all the time Mm -hmm. and and we're, and we're studying the terrain. And when I drove through and, and I went to college in Montana, so I spent a lot of time in Montana hunting too. But when I drove through, The first time I ever hunted North Dakota, about 10 years ago, I told myself right when I got on that Missouri river, I said, I'm coming back here someday.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Well, I hope you get that chance this year to, to get to go over there and and mess around a little bit. And like you said, that's probably a lot different when you're not able to scout it. Like you are all your, your, your hometown places.
0: Right. And, you know, I like getting on a map. I've already got my stand sites picked out over there, looked at it all, public land. I've got a bunch of ideas and I've already got it looked over good. And I have a friend that lives out there and I kind of showed him when I was looking at, he goes, oh yeah, those are, you know, that's probably good. And I'm going to take that custom gear stand. I I want to go put that stand to a test to where I'm actually hunting mobile more out of it on a out of state public land hunt. Just see how that all plays out and we'll film everything. And and you know, and see see if we're good enough to get it done.
1: Yeah. That's that's awesome. I it's funny that we're talking about the mobile setups. I I've went this year I'm almost hundred percent mobile just because we in Pennsylvania we're not allowed having our stands up they have to be put up two weeks before the season and taken down two weeks after. And I was elk hunting two weeks before the C se- the season. And, uh, and I just hate going in there and, and, you know, messing with it. I like to to go in and, you know, hunt at that time, which, you know, requires a little bit more work, but I've gotten pretty efficient with, you know, my system and, and, uh, i at some point I'd love to try out one of those, the lone wolf custom gear ones. Cause those are just those stands. I was talking, I met Cody at the ATA show and then talked to him again in Harrisburg and they're awesome. They're yeah. just amazing stands.
0: They're incredible. They're the, they're the most efficient, fastest, quietest hang and hunt that I've ever been in and I've used all Andre's over the years since the nineties. Um, there's nothing like it. It's so easy to get in a tree with that setup. Uh, they're just incredible. It's the nicest setup I've ever used. And I just got mine this year and I hunted bear out of it this year a little bit, and I've already hung it on a big white tail. And it was just, it was a pleasure to hang, you know, it's just quick five minutes. And you're if honest to God, 10 minutes at the most and you're hunting.
1: That's awesome. That's, that's, yeah quick and efficient and and I, cause I used to use climbers in some places where i could get when i had straight trees but that was the problem i could never find the right tree and they were noisy you know climbing up and they're
2: and noisy yeah, yeah. that the, yeah. the
1: noise was the biggest thing and we have a lot of like cherry trees around here with the barks kind of loose and it's just it sound i'd go up a tree and be like well i just screwed everything up <laughs> you know yeah. yeah I there's
0: nothing worse I learned the hard way 20 years ago, I bought a climber and my deer are like, oh, thanks for letting us know you're in the mountains. <laughs> we just heard, we just heard you from a quarter mile away, climbing a fricking tree and heard clanking, you know, and they're just like, I never saw a deer out of those hardly ever. Now I learned right away to, I, I took my old climbers and stuck them in a tree and put ladders up to them. <laughs> that's funny (laughs) that's what i had to do in the old days and we have to pull our stands too in the public ground we we have to take them out you know we have to pull them and the nice thing is our our seasons are so long if you put them in two weeks before august 30th you can leave them till january when you go shed hunting
1: yeah that that is nice (laughs) that's funny though but um (laughs) (laughs) anyways troy well i think we should probably wrap this one up i know you have to go to uh one of your son's big football games uh tonight and everything so i want to be you know respectful to your time and i think that uh i one thing that interests me i didn't want to ask you any questions on it because i know it's a whole nother rabbit hole is we're gonna have to get you back on sometime in the winter to talk about shed hunting hey let's
0: do it that's probably my second favorite passion above hunting elk is big white tails killing them yep shed antlers and then bull elk so yeah and then you ever (laughs) want to talk bears too i love hunting bears but no let's talk shed hunting i've i absolutely just cherish shed hunting i love it and it's great scouting too
1: yeah oh heck yeah i'm i'm I I definitely want to get you back on to talk about that. I, you sent me some pictures earlier today of some of your shed piles and everything, and it was it was awesome to to see that. Pretty impressive.
0: Thank you. That's that's a that picture I sent you. Shed hunting was a one day. My son and I and our dog, and just to set the record straight, when people see the dog, the dog is awesome. Basically, what he does though is add a third person to us. Ty and I, my son and I usually find as many as him or more. He just adds that teammate for us that the ones that we can't see, he's mm-hmm. finding those ones that are so buried that, you know, yep. it's, you know, it's, he, he has not My, my point is this he's incredible and he's a blast that I've been shed hunting for 30 some years and that dog's five years old. So, you know, yeah. that's what it is. It, <laughs> it, it, it. its He's just another. He, he's incredible. We the probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done shed hunting is to get to do it with my son, who's passionate about big white tails and he is a killer. That kid's got it in his blood and he works hard at it with me. Um, he's not spoiled. He does everything, hangs the stands, helps me find the deer, find everything the sheds, um, all that to say. But to train that dog together, he and I got to train Hank, who our dog's his name is Hank. We got to train him from seven weeks up and we did it ourselves.
1: Wow. That's, that's awesome. That's, that's rewarding too, to, to have, you know, have them come along and be able to help you out a little bit. That's, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: and, and my, Yeah. It's just, it's another, you know, you younger guys start, I don't know where you are with family and kids or anything like that, but you want to talk about the best memories of my life. Best memories of my life are my oldest son catching his giant bass in his tournaments, and my youngest son killing big whitetails with me or shed hunting. Those are my favorite memories.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to them. But right now I do not have any kids and I'm not married. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there yet, but I, I know I will be at some point. So,
0: <laughs> Well, when, hey, I know you got to go, Bo, but the thing I'll share, when I was your age, that's when I was really learning, really out grinding 300 days a year, at least partial days at least 250 days a year, at least making sure I was in the woods for an afternoon. And that's where I really learned my deer and, you know, really learned how, how they operated year around from shed hunting all through the winter, spring and summer, scouting and trail cameras, and then rolling into the hunting season, then literally taking one or two days off at Christmas and right back at shed hunting.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah that's it sounds that sounds uh it sounds like me just trying to take in as much information as possible and spend as much time out there you know it's it's, it's funny this weekend I I decided to uh that I wasn't gonna hunt and I was gonna go visit some friends that I had in college and everything and I kind of had to have a talk with myself you know there's a little bit more to life than hunting I need to I need to find balance <laughs> You yeah.
0: Know. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, you know, you know, you know, there is, but I will say this too. If you really want to be your best version of a whitetail hunter, then you are going to have to sacrifice some of that. And I did. My wife sacrifices for me. She, you know, I, I I didn't do a lot of stuff in my twenties and thirties that a lot of my buddies were doing just because I was out in the mountains instead when I look back on it, I wouldn't change anything, but you're right. There still is that time. You got to go spend too. There there is that.
1: Yep. And, and one thing you said that that's funny and that I can relate is when, when you were talking about, you know, going out with your sons and the, those, you know, the the memories that you have there with him, it's like, so I, I know my dad, you know, he, he put everything aside to help me learn, you know, growing up. And my dad's a great whitetail hunter. And, and, you know, he was there is sitting in the tree behind me when I killed my first archery, uh, buck, which is still the oldest one is one that was eight and a half years old. He was there and he was happier than I was, you know, and, and got to see yeah. the whole thing. And, and, uh, now, now, uh, we, we're, you know, we're competitors, uh, you know, he's, he's back to being able to hunt by himself and, and I do the same and it's, it's, it's fun, but you know, he sacrificed a lot of time for me and I really appreciated that.
0: Yeah, that's, that's what it's all about truly is. And it's a cliche, but it is my son's 16 now, and he wants to hunt on his own, which I'm loving it. You know, yeah. he, 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 he doesn't want to sit with dad anymore. Yeah.
2: He, he's a, he's
0: a, he, he's a grown young man. That's, you know, inspiring to go to college and play some football. And he wants to do his own thing. And I love it because he's ready, you know, yeah. I turn him loose. He, he goes to his stands. I go to mine. We hang a lot of them together, but in the end, he's really becoming independent and I love seeing that.
1: Yep. No, that's, that's awesome. Well, Troy, I really appreciated you, you know, being able to come talk with me here and, and especially on such short notice and uh, I'm just, um, you got me fired up here. So I, I really appreciate it. Is it, can you tell the listeners some places where they can find you and some of your some of your work, some of your photos, just anything that that you can think of there that you want to want to shout out.
0: Yep, absolutely, the easiest way to get a hold of me is my Instagram is m t n m a n so Mountain Man. That comes from being a mountain whitetail hunter. My buddies started calling me that years ago from the Midwest. So Mountain Man underscore thirty three. That's my old college number. So Mountain Man 33 on Instagram, if somebody wants to shout out, talk to me. I'll try to help anybody any way I can. Um, my Facebook's loaded, about out of room there, but feel free to find <laughs> me on Facebook, Troy Pottinger. Um, and then, you know, really get – I'm involved with Whitetail Addictions, which is all going to be semi-live stuff on YouTube this year. With the Aquisto family, I mean, those guys have been unbelievable to me. And they're my kind of people. They're, they're freaking hardcore They, they think for themselves, they do it their own way, just, you know, and, you know, it's neat being in that group of really good whitetail hunters, because we don't all do everything the same exact way, but what we do recognize is how hard every guy in that group works and how smart they are. So, so, you know, that's another lesson for all, you know, there's more than one way to kill big whitetails, way more than one way, but there are some overlying principles that definitely work in almost every scenario on an old buck that don't work. And there's or excuse me, and then there's things that just flat out don't work too. So anyway, yeah, Mountain <laughs> Man 33 or underscore 33 and then my Facebook and you know that's how people get a hold of me.
1: Perfect. And and uh, you said the the whitetail addictions, that's gonna be on YouTube.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be all YouTube this year. If you look at lone wolf custom gear. Lone Wolf Custom Gears YouTube page is rocking. Cody does a gr- Cody D'Aquista does a great job with it. Um, we're going to load stuff up on – we're already loading stuff on there all the time. Guys are – we already had a guy on our team kill a 200, 203 <laughs> in Kansas. Uh, that's going to be coming out real soon, the actual hunt. We're going to try to get stuff, you know, not live but semi-live to people during the season just so that, pe- you know, people are wanting to see it right away. They don't want to wait a year on TV. Mm-hmm. So we're doing that. And then, uh, again, if anybody's looking for that synthetic scent, BuckFeverUSA.com, I've been using that stuff for 21 years, going on 22. It's incredible. Works great. I've never had a deer spook from it, ever. Never seen a deer spook. Never had one spook on camera from it. Never rots. stands can be in your shelf for 10 years and use it 10 years later. And then, hey, I, give me one more shout-out. <laughs> I'm, I'm into the – one more, if you don't mind. You're good. I'm into the e- – I'm into the electric bikes now. They get me in, they get me out, super quiet. I'm not as sweaty. I'm loving it. And I am a part of a hardcore e-cycles team. And I'm the Western rep out here for those bikes. Okay. Hardcore e-cycles.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Troy. Again, I, I appreciate everything and you spilling out your knowledge here of, of, you know, all your years of experience. I, I'd, I'd tell you what, me personally, whether anyone listens to this or not, I appreciate it and will be definitely taking note of that.
0: Hey Bo, it's nice to meet you. Um, I like seeing guys that are out real, you know, guys like you that are out trying to, maybe a little tougher scenario, but once you get these mountains figured out, there's no feeling like consistently killing a big mountain whitetail every year with your bow.
1: Yeah. All right, Troy. Well, uh, we are we're go offline here, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how your season unfolds. You too, Bo. Good luck.